This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When each day of war in Ukraine brings some fresh horror, pictures of a shopping mall in Kiev reduced to ruins, or video of a children's hospital or maternity ward destroyed in a targeted attack, it can be difficult to imagine this violence could become routine. But Slate's Fred Kaplan says that's probably what's about to happen. I keep hearing this same word again and again when I read about the war in Ukraine. The word is stalemate. Mm-hmm. Like the war could be a stalemate. I'm kind of curious what that would mean. Well, it just means that each side keeps slogging each other, but neither makes any real progress toward what they're trying to accomplish. So a stalemate isn't an ending. It's just a steady state. You're thinking of, say, a stalemate in chess. And since chess players are presumably rational people, when they hit a stalemate, they realize, well, we might as well just call it a tie and leave because we're just wasting our time. In war, however, there is always the hope, especially the side that started the war, that maybe something will happen that will strengthen our position and we will get more of our demands. And that seems to be what Vladimir Putin is doing right now. Fred covers national security for Slate. He says when he looks at pictures of what's going on in Ukraine, it feels like a geopolitical game of mercy. Do you feel like there's a timetable here? Like I keep hearing if Ukraine can just hold on for a few more days, Russian forces will be brought to heel. I don't know. I mean, at least around Kiev, they don't seem to be making any progress, but they could surround Kiev and just keep bombing and shelling them. The question is, okay, which happens first? That the Russian army is completely exhausted, you know, so riven with desertions and running out of fuel and running out of food. Which happens first, that or that the Ukrainians are just completely exhausted and completely bombed out and their cities are reduced to rubble? I mean, it, it, it's an insane thing, but that that seems to be the competition right now. Today on the show, it's been three weeks of battle. Here's how Russia and Ukraine are preparing for a next brutal stage of this war. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To figure out where the war in Ukraine goes from here, Fred says it can be useful to look at how each side is talking about this conflict and how the vocabulary and what's being asked is subtly changing. Take Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine. Last week, he gave a speech in front of Congress. Technically, he was there to ask the U.S. to enforce a no-fly zone, keeping Russian planes out of Ukraine's airspace. Thank you very much. I'm proud to greet you from Ukraine. From our and you noted that we kind of saw a side of Zelensky that we're familiar with, but also you could see him trying to make a deal, which you thought was clever, almost, because there had been so much discussion about shutting down the skies in Ukraine, keeping Russian fighter jets out. And he talked about that, but then he pivoted. Right now, the destiny of our country is being decided. Tell me a little bit about what he did. He wants a no-fly zone. But he knows that we don't want to do that for actually a few reasons. One, a no-fly zone, it's not like sending out a, you know, a guard at an intersection. It's shooting down Russian planes that enter into Ukrainian airspace and therefore possibly sparking a direct war between the United States and Russia. There's another practical thing. Russia isn't even using that many planes to do their damage. It's mainly artillery shells and missiles. And a no-fly zone can't even deal with that. So basically he said, okay, if a, if a no-fly zone goes too far, if this is too much to ask, we offer an alternative. You know. Send me surface-to-air missiles. You know where they are, you know what they are. And two hours later, Biden did just that, which suggests to me that the deal was already worked out. Yeah, it felt coordinated. But that's good. It shows that there is a practical side to Zelensky. He's also said, look, I understand. Okay, I get it. Ukraine is not going to be allowed into NATO anytime soon, so I'm dropping that. So he's telling Putin, okay, you wanted us to stay out of NATO. All right, I'm staying. I, I concede on that point. It's like negotiating in public. Yeah, it's putting pressure on Putin, too. And Putin has now shown that that is not his only demand. Well, so let's turn to Putin and what he's saying publicly now. I know that you watched as he gave a couple of speeches last week that seemed to pour cold water on the idea that he's losing his will to commit more resources to the war in Ukraine. On Wednesday, he had this televised conference with his generals. And you flagged this speech for the way he seemed to embrace his inner Joseph Stalin. Why? Like, what did you see there? Yeah. In fact, you know, people talk about his crazy speech right before the invasion. I think this speech is a lot more, it's, it's something to be more worried about. His speech basically said, we don't need anybody in the West. In fact, the West are enemies. In fact, Russians who adapt Western ways are like scum, 
that we should spit out. And we don't need anything they're offering. We're going to now do a big industrial plan, keep consumer goods going. But he defined that as food and medical supplies. You know, not the other nice consumer products that Russia's been importing from the West for 20 or 30 years now. So you may not be able to go to Uniqlo or McDonald's or whatever, but we'll find a way to get your medicine and your food. And we'll revitalize industry. But basically, he's saying, yes, this is who we are. We know who we are. Anybody who disagrees with this and with me is scum that we should spit out. In other words, we're expelling them. I mean, this is going back to, you know, enemy of the people, rootless cosmopolitans. I mean, you can even see a gulag. The question is this, and it really is the question at the moment. Putin has kind of had a contract with the Russian people and the Russian elite for the last decade or two. And that is okay. That nice democracy that you had for 15 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, that's over. But everything will be fine. You'll have enough to eat. You'll have consumption. You'll, You'll be fairly well off and things will be stable. So that's my trade. And people went with it. Now, things are not stable. The economy is in the tank. They can't get goods from the West or even sell their own goods to the West, except for oil and gas, which is a big exception. But still, unless China can bail them out completely, which I don't think it can do even if Chairman Xi wants to, a lot of people in Russia are going to get irritated. It seems like there is no hope for having any sort of restoration of decent relations with Russia at this point as long as Putin is still in power. Because he doesn't really want to have anything to do with the West. Many of the things he is saying and doing, he can't really backpedal on. And by the way, it goes both ways, too. President Biden said the other day that Putin is a war criminal. You can't you can't very easily walk back from that one either. I mean, leave it to Putin. He's being consistent. Like on Friday, he had a rally to mark the eighth anniversary of the taking of Crimea. The way he framed things to the people he spoke to was, we haven't had this unity for a long time, which is, I guess, a positive way of saying all the things you just said about how he's framing the war. That's what he says. I mean, the stadium was full of people, 100,000 people. And a lot of them were saying, yeah, we had our, our factory boss told us we had to come to this. A lot of people left early. It was like uh, Stalin's time or North Korea, although the, the audiences in North Korea for these things uh, seem to be much more enthusiastic. Yeah. I mean, I look at the remarks from Zelensky and Biden and Putin, and the main thing I, I notice is that Zelensky and Biden, while they're saying things that, yes, they're hard to walk back from, they also seem to be looking for an off-ramp of some kind. I'm not sure that I see that when I listen to what Vladimir Putin's saying. Now, one could say that not saying you're looking for an off-ramp gives you a stronger position to take an off-ramp. True. Look, I mean, Biden came out with a list of stuff that he's sending to Ukraine that's worth about $800 million. Uh, that on top of $1.9 billion that, that he'd sent in previous weeks. 
It's real money. Well, it's it's real stuff, too. This could help Ukraine, and this is what they want to do, keep the war going for quite a while, a tremendous punishment to Russian forces. I heard one estimate, I think a 1,000 Russian soldiers killed a week, but no one quite knows. Have you heard any estimates like that? Yeah, I've I've read estimates of like 10,000 so far. And when you think that in the decade that Russia fought in Afghanistan, they lost 15,000 people. Mm. And now it's been a few weeks in Ukraine. And, you know, what happened in Afghanistan was helped quite a lot in, in toppling the Soviet Union. This is one reason why Putin is trying to keep media completely locked down. This kind of pure attrition warfare is something that we really haven't seen for a long, long time. And, and this is kind of like a combination, from the Ukrainians' point of view, a combination of the stalemate of World War I and the city bombing of World War II. They're bombing Ukrainian morale. More in a minute, after a quick break. Tom Friedman at the New York Times had a way of framing what's happening now that I I guess was generous to the West, but I'm kind of curious what you think about it, which is he said, Volodymyr Zelensky and, and Joe Biden are on their plan A still, which is hold firm, the West will support Ukraine, while Putin has shifted to plan B. You know, instead of plan A, which was march right into Ukraine, Ukraine falls to Russia, install maybe a puppet government. Since that's not happening, plan B is to make things very painful for civilians in Ukraine, try to force the population into submission. I wonder if that's how you see what's happening right now, too. Uh, Yeah, certainly the plan B part of that. And Russia's done this before. They've done it in Syria. They've done it in Chechnya. Uh, You know, when they first started bombing Chechnya, people said, oh, well, the urban warfare is going to be terrible for the Russian troops. Well, there was no urban warfare. They just stayed outside, sieged the city, and and, and bombed and shelled it into oblivion. And that's what they're starting to do in certain cities of Ukraine as well. The limit to us is the fact that Russia has nuclear weapons— From Zelensky's point of view, he's pushing the U.S. and other countries to do more, do more, do more, because from his point of view, he's already facing something very close to nuclear catastrophe. Yeah, let's talk about the status of negotiations. Over the weekend, Volodymyr Zelensky went on CNN, and and he said he wants to negotiate directly with Vladimir Putin. He also said that without negotiations, we can't end this war. And negotiations have been going on throughout the conflict. So where do those stand at this point? What is each side asking for? There are grounds for a partial settlement, but, you know, something like this, it has to be the whole thing. For example, Putin came out with a four-point plan. He said, "Okay, you guys don't join NATO. You acknowledge that we have Crimea. And then also you've got to get rid of all the weapons that you have and denazification. Whatever that means. Yeah, well, denazification, if he says that Nazis are in power, I guess that means a new government. 
Okay, that's not going to happen. Demilitarization isn't going to happen. And by the way, Putin said nothing about, and then we'll pull our forces out of the country. So in other words, at least the four points that he put forth, a couple of them are, are worth talking about, and the rest is completely non-negotiable. But I read that last week, Russia seemed to be giving a little bit. The way Volodymyr Zelensky put it was that Russia was becoming more realistic in its requests. Well, in other words, they put a couple things on the table that were realistic. Right, that they could, for instance, keep a military. Yeah, but what does that even mean? I mean, they can keep a military, but with no Western-supplied arms and no Western troops. And that, you know, that doesn't cut it either. So especially, if, I mean, maybe it would have cut it before you threw 170,000 troops into their country, but not now. And, and by the way, there's no kind of supra entity that can just kind of come in and impose a peace. The UN can't do that, partly because Russia's one of the five permanent Security Council members, and therefore they can veto anything that comes up. But there, there is no power that can just kind of step in and say, okay, boys, you're done. The war is over. Here's what happens. There's no ref. There's no, yeah, there's nothing. There's no combination of powers. Some have suggested Israel might be in some kind of position because it maintains relationships with both countries. Yeah, but, you know, Israel can't offer Russia or Ukraine anything. Just because you're neutral or sort of neutral doesn't mean that you have leverage. Maybe China could. Uh, if she wanted to take on that role, maybe he could. But he's kind of seems still to be deciding where he stands on this whole thing. We've talked about Russia being on a plan B. Do you think Russia has a plan C or D? Well, I mean, I think Friedman wrote that that's what you don't even want to contemplate because they do have something in their back pockets. And, uh, you know, that's chemical and nuclear weapons. The United States used to have 7,000 tactical nuclear weapons in Europe, in Western Europe. These were to, to fight on the battlefield against Soviet tank onslaught coming into Western Germany. It's because our conventional armies weren't that big and weren't that great, and Russia greatly outnumbered us. We got rid of all of these tactical nuclear weapons some time ago, except for there are 100 nuclear bombs that can be dropped from airplanes that are based in various parts of Western Europe, England, Turkey, a couple other places. A hundred. That's it. The Russians now, it's, it's, it's kind of reversed. We're, our conventional forces are way better than theirs. And so they haven't got rid of their nuclear weapons. They have a couple thousand tactical nuclear weapons in the western part of, of Russia that could hit targets in Europe. Hmm. They have a doctrine that envisions some kind of using these nuclear weapons in tandem with conventional forces. They've rehearsed this in drills. Now, you know, their drills haven't been very good. They, they rehearsed this thing against Ukraine, too. It collapsed almost the first day. But the point is, yeah, that's their plan, Steve. This is the other kind of dilemma. You don't want to push Putin into a position where he faces one of two choices, either abject surrender or using everything he's got to try to get out of this. Nobody's prepared for this. This doesn't mean, you know, firing 
ICBMs at New York City or something. That's it, it, it would be using a handful in the area of the battlefield, maybe destroying Kiev. I don't know what it is, but you know, it doesn't take much. When we're talking about small tactical nuclear weapons, the smallest of them is, you know, maybe half the size of the bomb that leveled Hiroshima. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Volodymyr Zelensky said if negotiations fail between himself and Putin, it'll be World War III. It sounds like you kind of agree with him. No, I mean, again, I mean, it sounds this level of fighting can go on for quite a long time. And, and the question is, which side gets more exhausted first? This is one of the things that makes this war not just more brutal, but more nerve-wracking than many other wars that we've seen in recent decades. The stakes are so high, and the dangers of, of either losing or winning could unleash something just, uh, you know, cataclysmic. Fred Kaplan, thank you so much for joining me. Anytime. Fred Kaplan is a Slate correspondent. He's also the author of the book, The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Tensions continued to ratchet up after Fred and I got off the line. On Monday, Russia's foreign ministry said Biden calling Putin a war criminal was unacceptable and that the remark put U.S.-Russian relations on the verge of rupture. That's the show. Before we go, I just wanted to let you know Slate is currently having a sale. We are offering our Slate Plus membership at 25% off for the first year. You have been listening to our coverage of Ukraine. And in the months ahead, we're going to give you all kinds of other updates about the Supreme Court, the midterms, the ongoing pandemic. We are ready to cover it all because Slate Plus members keep us going. So become one. You'll get great benefits like ad-free listening to this show and the rest of the Slate Network, member-exclusive segments on shows like Amicus and Political Gabfest, and unlimited reading on Slate.com, of course. So help us keep What Next going by signing up for Slate Plus at Slate.com slash WhatNextPlus. Again, it is 25% off your first year for a limited time. So sign up now at Slate.com slash WhatNextPlus. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, and Carmel Del Shad. We're getting a little help these days from Laura Spencer and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. I will talk to you in this feed bright and early tomorrow.